Hey guys, welcome to episode 129 of the True Crime Couple podcast. I'm Kay. And I'm John. We hope you're all doing well, and we want to take this time at the beginning of the show to thank you all for positive reviews that you've left, and for those of you that have joined Patreon since our last show. At the end of the episode, we're going to be thanking all of you by name, so stay tuned if that's you. If you are interested in joining our Patreon and getting extra episodes, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash truecrimecouple. So everyone always says that they love that we kind of just dive right in. So are you ready to get started? I'm always ready. As a senior class advisor, I have the very stressful but amazing job of planning prom and graduation every year. It is so exciting to see my students grow from apprehensive but wild ninth graders into young adults who are preparing to begin the next phase of their life, finally achieving the independence that they have craved so much. And we all know it's almost like an electric buzz in the air as graduation approaches, the excitement of what is to be and who they are to become. I always tell my students that the best is yet to come, but I know they never believe me because to them at 18 years old, this is it, everything. And that is what makes this case so utterly heartbreaking. Weeks away from her own graduation, Marlis Wollenhouse's life was stolen from her. And thus the world was denied ever getting to know the future of the beautiful, intelligent, and kind young woman. The death of Marlis was brutal and callous. Although her family will go to great lengths to solve her murder, it would take 19 years for justice to be had. However, unearthing Marlis's murderer would reveal an evil greater than the police could have ever dreamed of. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. So I'm going to start us off here in the spring of 1979 in Afton, Minnesota. Afton is located in the central part of the state and basically sits on its furthest border to the right. The St. Croix River hugs the eastern border of the small town, a town of about 2,000 people in 1979. And on the other side of that river is the state of Wisconsin. As I stated in the intro, it was an exciting time for the class of 1979, as their graduation date was only two weeks away. Marlis Wollenhouse was a lively, beautiful, animated 18-year-old girl. She was petite, at just over 5 feet tall, with sandy blonde hair parted down the middle and feathered as was so popular in the late 1970s. Marlis loved spending time with her friends and they often frequented a dance club that was across the river in Wisconsin. And she chose her friends and the few boyfriends that she had very carefully. She only surrounded herself with people that were good to her and respected her. She was very intelligent and stayed focused in school. She got good grades, something that her mother was very proud of her for. Marlis worked three days a week at a restaurant in St. Croix Beach, which is located on the river, of course, and sat just north of Afton. 
She worked as a waitress there with many of her friends and students that she went to school with. There, she was loved by all of the employees, bosses, and the regulars. The restaurant, which was called Jean Daniels, was a comfortable place for her to be because the auto body shop that was just across the way was owned by her mother and stepfather. During the week, the location was a hot spot for those looking to get a meal after they left another close business called the Beach Bar. So usually what happened was the employees from either the body shop or the nearby lumber yard would go get drinks after work. And then either to get dinner or to sober up a little bit, they would go over to Jean Daniels, which was kind of like a diner style restaurant. It was a lively place that was perfect for the affable and charming young girl to work. During this time, so early May of 1979, Marlis's mother and stepfather were in the middle of a pretty nasty divorce, which was definitely taking a toll on her mother, Fran, and Marlis's 16-year-old sister, Lynn. Marlis was not really upset to see her stepfather go, though, because his relationship with her mother had been violent and aggressive, especially towards the end, and the violence was really mostly on the part of her stepfather, Greg. And the divorce itself was actually really complicated and contentious because not only did they own a farmhouse together, which was on 13 acres, and was really special to Marlis's mother, Fran, because that's where she raised her three children. But they also owned a business together. So that becomes financially complicated as well as emotionally. Well, yeah, because you have you literally have the place where you uh, live and also a company that provides you income. So, yeah, that is really tricky. That is a landmine field. <laughs> yes. And despite this tumultuous time, Marlis and her mother were intent on celebrating the milestone in her life. They, along with Marlis's younger sister, 16-year-old Lynn, were going to take a trip after graduation. Now, at the time, it was only Fran and her two young daughters that lived on the 13-acre farm just outside of the Afton city limits. But she did have a son that was older than both girls um, named Ray that did not live at home. Ray actually worked at the body shop that was co-owned by his mother and stepfather. And, you know, although they had a really tumultuous relationship, there's a lot of, like, stepchildren involved because Greg also has a son who's close with the three Woolenhouse children. So it was really complicated. And although his mother was getting a divorce from Greg, Ray worked for Greg. So... It was a little bit of a mess for this mixed family at the time. Yeah, it sounds it. So the biological father of Fran's three children left her shortly after the youngest child, Lynn, had been born. And interestingly enough, before he left, he said, well, if you ever have any trouble with the car, and he left the number of Greg Lou, who eventually becomes her husband, and that's the person she's now getting divorced from. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Some people have very interesting met yeah. stories. It's like, here, here's a number to a guy that can help you with your car trouble. I'm out. See you later. Yeah, and That's then so you weird. marry him. <laughs> <laughs> so currently, Fran and her two daughters lived on the large remote property on Trading Post Trail. 
and she was dating someone else, a man named Jack Mundy. But it seemed as if she was going to lose the house that she loved so very much in the divorce. And this, of course, was something that all the girls were upset about because it meant that they would be leaving their childhood home forever. And the packing process was kind of beginning on the part of Fran. Also, a side note, Fran, who, again, is Marlis's mother, was the first woman to become an EMT in the state of Minnesota that was not also a firefighter. Isn't that really interesting? That is. And the way she was making her money now, because the EMT position was a voluntary position, was that she was breeding St. Bernard dogs. Hey, that could be a good business. You, oh, know? you make a lot of money doing that. Absolutely. But and even if you're a volunteer, I believe you get some sort of compensation towards retirement, I'm sure. Yeah, I believe there's pensions yeah, involved. There's something there, yeah. So that all leads us to May 8th, 1979. It was just an average Tuesday. Marla said goodbye to her mother and their pet dog, Patience, and she left the house. She drove to school and went through the motions. Her friends and the entire student body was excited for school to be finished soon. When the day was through, she drove home with her friends Becky and Beth. On the way home, the girls stopped at the auto body shop to pick up mail for her mother that had been delivered there by accident. Fran had asked her to do this favor because she didn't want to stop by and possibly see Greg. Okay. And um, it really wouldn't have mattered anyway because Greg wasn't present at the shop at that time. She probably wouldn't want to take any chances. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So working that day at the shop was her older brother, Ray. When Marlis spotted him, she looked to Ray as if she was a little bit concerned about something. And she said that she wanted to talk to him. And it seemed like she wanted to talk to him about something serious. And he did want to talk to his little sister, but he actually couldn't at the moment. And he told her, I do want to talk to you, but I'm just kind of running late. I have to go pick up Greg at the airport because he was flying in from Chicago um, and he couldn't hang around. So they both agreed that they would get together and talk a little bit later on in the week. Okay. After leaving the shop, she drove to her friend Beth's house. However, Marlis knew that her mother had been waiting for the mail, so she told Beth and Becky that she would have to go to her house first, and then she would be able to hang out with them. So she kind of asked them, hey, do you want to just come back, come on the drive with me to my house, and then we'll head back to the restaurant. They were going to go to Jean Daniels to kind of get something to eat. But the two girls said no, they were going to actually just hang out at Becky's house for a little bit. And then the three girls agreed to meet at Jean Daniels. Okay. So this is when they separate. And Marlis was okay with this because her home was a little bit out of the way. So she knew that it would be, you know, a little bit of a drive and the girls kind of wanted to hang out. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you have 13 acres of property, you probably live outside of the little city limit. Yeah. (laughs) So... It really was going to be a quick errand. She just had to drop, go home, drop off the mail, and then she was going to leave again. But Marlis would never get to meet up with her friends again. Because when she went home to return the mail, she was attacked. 
attacked in the very place that she was supposed to feel the most safe. Because little did she know when she walked through the door that within the home, a killer was lying in wait. So at around 3.15, a nine-year-old girl named Angela, we don't have to like really get into last names, um, had come home from school and changed into her play clothes. And this, I mean, she's really young. So remember when you had like your play clothes and your school clothes? Oh, yeah. I had to, especially me, my mom was very, (laughs) very strict about changing out of clothes for school for school yeah yeah so she changed into her play clothes and she headed out she was at the time riding her bike south on trading post trail because she lived on that street as well and she was riding towards the direction of the woolen house home now she had just gotten to the hill on the road and the woolen house property is actually kind of well the entrance to their property is at the the crest of this hill or the precipice of the hill. So little Angela always tried to ride up this hill with her bike, but she was never able to make it. So Angela was at the point of the hill where her little legs could pump no longer. So she got off the bike and began to push it up the hill. As she did this, she was approaching the Woolen House driveway entrance, which was on the opposite side of the road from where she was. She couldn't see the house from the entrance because actually the actual house, farmhouse, was three-tenths of a mile up the gravel driveway. So she can only see the entrance of the driveway. Okay, so this this house is kind of off the beaten path. Like, it's off the road by a lot. Yes, it is. Okay. So what she does see, though, is a car driving up the gravel driveway towards the street and she realizes that the car's going pretty fast so she kind of freezes and when the driver goes to turn onto the road from the gravel driveway the person driving hit the gas even further and did a fishtail out of the driveway into the street The action made a loud noise and threw rocks and dust from the gravel driveway, flying everywhere and hitting Angela. The girl was scared. She looked at the car that was speeding away and noted that the car was a light color and was sporty, nothing like the car her parents had. She was really too young to know what kind of car it was. And she made a note of all of this to herself because she was going to tell her dad about it at dinner. She said in her head story, right? I'm going to tell my dad this jerk did this. Maybe (laughs) he'll get mad for me. So this is important because we know from the fourth grader what time the killer left the house. Really? Okay. That's that's important, actually. It is. Yeah. So Fran comes home at around 330, which is only 15 minutes after the departure of this this light colored sports car. And usually she gets home a little bit later because she liked getting home around 340 because that's when her youngest daughter, Lynn, would get dropped off at the end of the driveway by the school bus. So usually she liked driving her daughter from the entrance up to the house because it's a three tenths of a mile. It's a quarter mile walk. Yeah. I mean, if you can get a ride, that'd be nice. Yeah. 
But she got there. She looked at her watch. She realized it was 3.30. And she was like, okay, 10 minutes is a little long to wait. So she decided to just head up to the home. As she approached the house, she saw her daughter Marlis was home because her car was in the driveway. So this was exciting because usually, as most seniors in high school are, Marlis was out with her friends after school or she was at work. So she was looking forward to seeing her and spending some time with her. As she walked into the house, she called out for her daughter. Marcy, I'm home. The nickname that her family often used with her. She put the packages that she had with her down and wandered into the office of the home as she often did. And that was when she saw her daughter. And she couldn't help but scream out. Marlis was on the floor of the office, propped up by a tiny school desk that the kids used to use when they were younger, and it now served as a little table. She was covered in blood, and the blood seemed to be coming from wounds on her head. Fran was a trained EMT, and she knew that this was bad. Marlis had lost a lot of blood. Not only was she covered in it, but it pooled around her. Head injuries were always the worst, but this was different than anything Fran had ever had to deal with, and not just because of the violence, but because this was her child. She reached to see if there was a pulse, and relief washed over her. She'd felt one. It was faint, but it was there. Fran did not know how long she had been there or how much blood she had truly lost, But what she did know was that time was of the essence. She called the police and was connected to the sheriff's office. She gave her name and instructions as to how to get to her house. Inside, she was frantic, but she knew she had to remain calm so they could get all of the information as quickly as possible. But when the operator asked her to repeat that information again, she lost it. She screamed at them to just send an ambulance to get here. She hung up the phone and cradled her daughter in her arms. As she was doing so, she called her boyfriend, Jack, and told him that she needed him to come help. Again, she tried to remain calm for her daughter and held her close. She told her everything was going to be all right because she was there with her now. Help came quickly. A deputy responded at around 3.37 p.m., so only seven minutes after the phone call was placed. But it must have felt like an eternity. And then shortly thereafter, an EMT arrived at the scene. When the call came in, all the first responders of the town recognized the address because they all knew Fran and they all knew the Woolen House family. The EMT that responded had worked really close with Fran for years, and Fran had actually helped train him, and he had even once dated Marlis. So when he saw the address, he like went there right away. Okay. When they arrived, they worked quickly to try and stop the bleeding. But they all knew that there was nothing they could do there. She would need to be immediately taken to the hospital. They needed to stabilize her, place her on a gurney, and get her out of there. And at this point, everyone had showed up at the house, including Fran's former stepson, Kevin, 
the son of Greg, the man she was currently divorcing, as he was a firefighter in the town. So Kevin and the girls had always been really close. So he was very distraught at seeing Marlis like this as well. And they were also pretty close in age. As Lynn was coming home from school on her bus, she saw the police cars, the fire trucks, the ambulance, all speeding past her bus. But at the time, she didn't think anything of it until she was dropped off at the end of her driveway. Because as she walked up the gravel path that led to the house, she realized that those emergency vehicles had been headed towards her home. So when she saw all of this, she didn't know who was hurt. So she began to run towards the house. Fran had been watching the EMTs load Marlis onto the gurney. And as she was being loaded into the ambulance, she saw her youngest daughter running towards them. Lynn had been stopped by a deputy, and she was clearly demanding answers from the young man. And she was getting agitated because he was asking her questions like, are you the younger sister? Does your sister fall often? Because they didn't know what had happened to Marlis. And she was getting really frustrated. And that's when Kevin is going to rush over to help her calm her down a little bit, explain what's going on. And Marlis was rushed to the hospital. She had shown signs of life. She fought weekly with EMTs as they were trying to stop the bleeding. So that was good. She was still with them, and that's what the family was holding on to. But things looked really bad. There was massive head trauma. Marlis's wounds on her head were so deep that brain matter was exposed. So in addition to an IV, they were giving her a lot of oxygen in hopes that the hyperventilation would reduce swelling on her brain. I mean, that's insane that that's how severe those head injuries are. Yeah. Because the sad reality is, even if you are able to stop the bleeding and, and stabilize her, there's a really good chance that if that swelling doesn't go down, she could be in, in a coma. There could be zero brain activity. And, you know, she, I mean, essentially, it's like half a person sitting on that gurney on that bed. That's so true. it's just really sad that she's like, it's great that she's stable, but like, it's just so sad to see her like that. I'm sure for everybody in the family. Yes, because and even all the first responders, I mean, this is kind of rare because usually it's a stranger you're working on. They all know her. Yeah. So it's it's very difficult for them all to be working. And there's a lot of emotions involved in all of this. And at first, when the call came through, I mean, Fran didn't know where all this blood was coming from. One just assumed it was a gunshot wound. But as they were kind of trying to stop the bleed, they realized, no, this is blunt force trauma. It just went so deep that it literally cracked her skull open. Yeah, that's uh, that's crazy. I mean, I think it's I mean, I, I don't want, I think it's a little too early here, but I would say that that is not from falling down the stairs. I know that you can suffer some trauma downstairs, but I don't think to this extent. No. I, from falling down the stairs. So I, I think we can pull that right. out already. Yeah. <laughs> you're right on that one. So while the doctors worked to save Marlis's life, the investigation began back at the farmhouse. Before she left for the hospital, detectives were able to speak with Fran. She had told them where and in what position she had found her daughter. 
She also let them know that their dog, Patience, a St. Bernard, had been found in an upstairs bedroom. Someone had closed the door on the dog, and she was certain that her daughter would not have done that. Fran also said that the dog didn't like strangers, but the dog didn't really bark when there were strangers. Um, he, he kind of hid, so he had a habit of going upstairs into one of the bedrooms when someone was in the house he did not know. And that ended up being the only real clue that detectives would find at the house. Besides the carnage that appeared in the part-time office, the rest of the house was seemingly untouched. Nothing was amiss. There were no signs of breaking and entering. Everything was as it had been when Fran left to go run errands. Detectives also noted that there had been cash and valuables located in the office, which were visible and left untouched, so the motive had not been robbery. There also did not appear to be a scuffle that took place anywhere, so what they were thinking was the killer must have surprised Marlis and had the advantage. But the question was, how did they get in? Yeah, so... I'm I'm thinking about this now, right? So there's no breaking and entering, right? Mm-hmm. It seems like it was a surprise attack. The dog didn't bark, but we but like you said, the dog kind of did its thing by hiding. Yes. So I want to know a couple things, and what I'm about to I'm air quoting what I want to know, but okay. I don't want to know yet. I do have some answers. So. Okay, so I think that this is interesting. There's a lot of players here. And there's a lot of people, I think, that are close to this family that could you could say are suspects from a, let's say, from a police perspective. Okay. So now this is what I want to know. Where was the mom 15 minutes prior to this incident? Was she at work? She was shopping. Okay. And then Greg, what, what is his, uh, what's his employment? I, I, what was he that? owns the auto body okay, shop. So he owns the auto body shop. And remember, Ray was picking him up from the airport. He was flying in from Chicago. Okay. So to me, this is interesting because I don't know why, but I feel like he might be a suspect. Um, I also think, would you just say Kevin? Kevin is Kevin his is son. the stepson. Uh, the stepson. Yes. Okay. Uh, he is a suspect. And the reason why I say that is because both of those people cannot be uh you can't necessarily determine where they were during this like yeah well, you can Greg say Ke- was on a flight yeah but kevin oh he uh, he's picking him up kevin we don't know because kevin does respond to the scene yes no no ray fran's son was picking up greg at the airport kevin the firefighter responded to the call gotcha okay. so kevin's the one that was around the area okay, so the kevin's time. in the area okay mm-hmm. so i got that confused no i'm just clarifying. no no it's good so now that's interesting, and they own an auto body shop. And the one red flag that I already have um, is the car that the kids saw was something that she never saw before. Them, you know, like this family had a car like that, and she knew right away that it was something sporty. Right. Well, she was saying like in her mind, she was like, "Oh my! Like my parents have a minivan. This car is so different than my parents' car." Yeah. She was thinking she didn't. She wasn't comparing it to the woolen house property however you are correct in the fact that they own an auto body shop so they always had rotating cars right that is you are correct now now i'm thinking 
is if it's someone that is employed through the stepfather that maybe has something personal against the stepfather would go to that house and do that. Okay. And what great way to do this if there's a car in a shop, you can just use that as your getaway car. It doesn't okay. have to be your personal car now. It could be anybody's car that left it with you. Right? I think that's so a good theory. I think that this is a red flag. So it's either an employee of of the uh, stepfather or it is someone even closer. But I think even if it's an employee, I think that, she, that Marlis knew who this person was. And that's why it was so effortless to let that person in. And she must have really known this person for it to be a surprise attack like that. Considering that no valuables were taken, um, no break-in at all. And if she was a surprise attack... Attacked and where she was found, she might have, she might have been struck a couple of times in the head and then fell down the stairs. Okay, you get what I'm saying. And then maybe then that person followed down and placed her at the table or continued to hit her. So I think mm-hmm. that that's why I I'm going with this. So, all right, that's your yeah. that's your claim as of right now. Yeah, these are all red flags to me. A half an hour in. Yeah. Um, I will say that I agree with you that I think it was totally a personal attack. It obviously has nothing to do with robbery because all the valuables were left there. The one thing, though, that Fran does say to detectives in regards to it looking like there was no breaking and entering was that the family did always keep the side door open. But that does also continue with your theory, because if it's someone who knows the family, they know the side door's open. Yeah. I know. Sorry, guys. I kind of went a little crazy there. No, we like it. And I actually got confused <laughs> between the two. But there's a lot of players. Like I said, there's a lot of family there, members in there this. Are, so there are. I got confused. But anyway, that's my theory. A, I think it's a good theory. Yeah. Okay. I try always to not react to your theories because they oftentimes are correct. Well, I don't. I tr- trust me, guys. I don't. I don't like that I get things right, but I do like to point out. Oh, you love it. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't, but I do like to point out red flags for our audience because maybe it's something that they were thinking about or or are questioning. So that's why I do it. You're the man of the people. I am the man of the people. Yeah. (laughs) So back at the hospital, the family prayed that everything would be okay for Marlis. The surgeries were semi-successful, but brain traumas were touch and go. And Marlis left surgery in the same deep coma that she had been in when she arrived at the hospital. The following day, the doctors told Fran and the rest of the family that there was only a 10% chance of Marlis waking up. And if she did, there was no telling the extent of the brain damage because there was no brain activity being detected. The doctors basically said at that point, the best thing the family could do would be to say their goodbyes to her. As you can imagine, that was something that was very difficult. After that, there being no signs of brain activity for a prolonged period of time, the family made the choice to take Marlis off of life support. The young woman was an organ donor, which in turn saved many lives. And although the loss of her daughter must have caused her immeasurable pain, that did give Fran some solace. And with that, the investigators that had been working a brutal assault case now had a homicide on their hands. The first in the county in two years. 
Yeah, I mean, that's when you come across something like this, I mean, this this sticks with you no matter how much time has passed, you know, for everybody involved in this town, you know? And there's only, what, you said 2,000 people in town. It's a very small town. Yeah. I actually, because I do this podcast all the time, and I feel that true crime podcasts always start with, it was a small town. And I was like, well, what makes something a small town? Like, how do you define a small town? And it's a population under 5,000. Yeah. So this has a population of 2,000. So we're talking super small. I mean, it is. No, it really is. So the job of the investigators is to find out who so savagely beat this beautiful, kind, caring high school senior to death with no provocation. And was the killer still among them? Were the children of the town safe? Because this one was really hard for the community to interpret, and nobody really did feel safe. And although they knew it was a hard time for the family, they also knew that they had to solve the crime. And to do that, they had to talk to them and get more information out of them. Fran and her boyfriend, Jack, told the detectives that there was no one who would have wanted to hurt Marlis. However, something was bothering them that they had been thinking about ever since they got to the hospital. In the days that preceded her murder, Marlis had been upset about something. She was not her usual cheerful self. It seemed that something was bothering her, or something was on her mind. This feeling that there was something going on with Marlis was shared also by her brother Ray. Really, just minutes before she was attacked, Ray had seen his sister, and she said she wanted to talk to him about something, and it seemed serious. He deeply regretted that he had somewhere else that he needed to be. He thought to himself that maybe, if he had stopped to listen, he could have helped, and maybe he could have even stopped the attack. The medical examiner's report told the story of Marlis's last moments, and they were bad. She had many hits to her head, but the largest two were deep puncture wounds, and these were the two that had exposed her brain. The opinion of the medical examiner was that the murder weapon that had produced these kind of wounds had been a claw hammer. Marlis also had large abrasions on her hands, as well as a broken bone in one of her hands and broken fingers on both hands. So she must have tried in vain to protect herself from the hammer attack. The location of these injuries suggested that the killer had been standing over her while she was on the ground. These facts were corroborated by blood spatter found at the scene. It seemed as if he had hit her once, and then she fell to the ground. And that was where the rest of the attack had commenced, and where, ultimately, her mother had found her. I mean that's really sad. I I, I want to include one other thing. Um, I'm not a, I'm not an Emmy, <laughs> okay, obviously. Uh, but uh, there is one other tool that can give the impression of a claw hammer. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know the exact name, but it 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 reminds me of a crowbar. So that some crowbars are hooked at one end. 
you know, like they're curved. Yes. But there's another kind of, uh, I, I, some people call it like a push bar or something to that effect. But it, essentially it's the same length, but at the other end, it's like forked. Almost like it, um, sometimes we use, like we use it in construction to like pull like um, nails or, or, or screws out of surfaces, but okay. could also be used to like pry like maybe like a door or like some other object like that. So it is forked like a claw hammer. So uh, you might find that in an auto body shop. That's true. You That's know, that true. is something else that is a forked object like I, that. I think it's very interesting that you bring up that tool, I guess you would call it. Yeah, I think some people call it different things, like I said. Okay, keep that in your back pocket. Okay. Because that's going to be really important later. And oh, also, this exact tool on the other end, it has a like a puncture style like point. So you're able to like kind of jab things. Interesting. So one end is like a claw and the other end is like a, a like a pointed end. Just picture it like uh an ice pick but like very thick. Like an ice pick, but thick at one end. Okay. So we call it like in construction, I know we refer to it as like a, a push bar or anything to get leverage. Good job. Yeah. Looking but it's not a but it's not a crowbar. It's different. Okay. Okay. We believe you. Yeah. But that's really good. So keep that because that's going to come become really important later on. Okay. Maybe all construction workers in, a, in their past should be like investigators. It's true because it's usually used as weapons. Yeah. Detectives knew that this attack was fueled by rage. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been so violent. Because they really didn't have too much to go off of, the first thing that investigators did was look into had criminal records nearby. And from that, they got two suspects. The first was a man named Tom Cartney. He had gotten a DUI and did some time for drug offenses. One witness said that the man had also made a lewd comment about Marlis after he had found out about the attack. He lived on the same street as the family, so they knew that he could have been close. The second was a man named Dennis Sipe. Sipe had a bit of a longer rap sheet. He had been arrested in the past for burglary, trespassing, and assault. He was also a drifter that had been known to stay in the woods that did go behind the 13-acre property that the family owned. The men both did have alibis. These alibis were very shaky, but at the time, all the police had was circumstantial evidence against them, the fact that they they had past records. And after questioning them and getting alibis, there was nothing else they really could do. But it was after detectives spoke to nine-year-old Angela... Remember, that was the girl who had seen the light-colored car. Uh, Neither of them drove a light-colored sports car, and Sype didn't even own a car. So the fact that she saw that person peel away like that, they realized it wasn't either of these two men. Okay. I mean, at least you're, you're trying to generate a lead, you know? Correct. Because they had no more witnesses, they decided it would be best to now look inward. Could there be any motive there? And there was, like you said, Greg, Marlis's stepfather. It's a lot of motive with Greg. Oh, right? yeah. I mean, yeah, especially now what's going on between um, the two of them getting divorced. He and Fran were going through a pretty difficult divorce and splitting things like property and businesses would go a lot easier if, you know, Fran wasn't around. Plus, the two had been in an abusive relationship. 
And by all accounts, it was Greg who had been the aggressor. Had Greg been rageful towards Marlis because of her very obvious and outspoken support of her mother? Could that have led to Marlis's murder? Because remember, Fran was not the one who was murdered. Right. Well, Greg Lou, because obviously police talked to him as soon as they could, he had an alibi. If you recall, when Marlis went to go talk to her brother, Ray, he said he had to go pick up Greg at the airport. Well, during the time of the murder, Greg's flight was landing from Chicago. Greg had been on the flight manifest, and several witnesses confirmed that he was on the flight. And he and the man next to him actually had a very long conversation, and they had exchanged business cards. Okay. I would say to you... at you know, as we're trying to piece this together, that him being on that manifest, him being, you know, him communicating with this gentleman actually means nothing to me because I don't think this guy's stupid. I don't think that even if he had motive, I don't think he would do this himself. So him getting on a plane to Chicago, to me, is the best way to solidify your alibi and to get the son involved by having to go pick him up. It just makes it a really strong alibi. We've had it happen we, before. We have. We have. Exactly. So when, pe- when, we, when people say, or when we say even in our own shows, oh, well, his alibi was this. He was in Chicago. Okay, cool. It doesn't matter. So, you know, he could just have this somebody else do it, which is why I said earlier my red flag was that it could have been an employee. What other way to make yourself not involved? throw some some cash this guy's way or this person's way say hey listen i'm coming into money i'm selling all my stuff i'm you know getting divorced i'm splitting my assets i'll give you this take her out and then maybe that person misidentified the wife for her or or maybe she wasn't there and he still carried it out who knows but maybe it went wrong who who knows but to say his alibi strong so he didn't do it it's not likely well the police are thinking the same exact way you are yeah Just because he had an alibi didn't necessarily mean he was innocent. In fact, it's a really convenient alibi. Detectives toyed around with the idea that maybe Greg hired someone to murder his soon-to-be ex-wife because he was angry. A, she was dating someone else. That's true. I didn't even think about that, too. And there's a pretty... It's it's a difficult divorce. So there's a lot to lose here. Could he have paid someone or gotten someone from the shop to murder Fran, but it all went wrong. After all, it had been Fran that was supposed to be home, not Marlis. Fran went out to run errands. Marlis wasn't even supposed to be home. She was supposed to be out with her friends. She was just returning the mail for her mother. Right, that was a last-minute choice. Correct. When members of the family were questioned about it, they did not think this was something that was outside the realm of possibility. See, so right there, uh, it's on police radar. You know, even the, own, the the actual family thinks that this could be true. Yeah. The divorce was contentious. And Greg did know a lot of shady people through him working at the body shop and doing a lot of things and trades illegally under the table. Because this was panning out to be a possibility The police were a little bit worried for Fran because it meant that she really was the target but wasn't killed. So during this very difficult time, the police are going to ask her to leave the state 
and stay with either a friend or family member because she could potentially be in danger. You have to imagine the emotional toll that this probably took because she's grieving the loss of her 18-year-old daughter and she also has to like flee the area for her safety. Yeah, but but I mean, it is a good choice to leave the area. I mean, because if you are a target, then you being in another state where they don't expect you to be and no one else knows about it, right. you're just going to make it that much harder and also solidify your safety. So Correct. good choice. Good choice. Detectives combed through a list of associates of Greg's, but they couldn't find anyone that they thought would be responsible for this attack. And they talked to everyone who worked at the shop. Nothing could be proven after a few weeks. And because of that, they asked Fran to return. They said, we think you're safe. We will kind of keep a car around the property. But they were still very suspicious of Greg. Just because there was no evidence tying this to him, he was still a suspect pretty high on their list. And actually, at this time, the only suspect on their list. I mean, it's always the husband, right? It always tends to be. <laughs> that's that's what happens. <laughs> Marlis's family had admitted that within the first few months of the murder, the police worked as hard as they could to find the person that had committed this atrocious crime. They were empathetic, encouraging, and determined. However, they didn't have that many resources, and when all of the leads and clues dried up, so did their passion for the case. It quickly became cold. And weeks turned into months, and months turned into years, and nothing happened. But Fran was determined to never give up. She was going to hunt for this monster until he was found. She didn't want a tragedy like the one she suffered to befall another family. By the fall of 1981, Fran was still periodically stopping by the sheriff's station to check on the progress of her daughter's case. And she would get really mad if she ever saw the file, like, sitting on top of a shelf somewhere. She told them they should be working as hard as they could, as hard as they had been in the beginning. Fran also worked to keep the story alive in the community and in the state by talking to the media and speaking about what had happened to her daughter and the fact that her killer had still not been caught. Her efforts did help a lot when the show Crime Stoppers is going to take on the case, and they featured it in one of their episodes. In addition to featuring the, sh- the story, they also offered a $10,000 reward for any information that could help with the case. I mean, that's really good when you get that public, like, um, you know, exposure. Like, not, now it's on TV, so now it's not just your your town or your county, not even the state. It's now everybody national. that watched it. Yeah, it's national now. So, I mean, that must, you know... That must have had to bring some sort of um, attention Attention. to it and maybe some calls or tips or something. And I think at the very least, what it does is it keeps pressure on police to be working and solving this case. Yeah, it keeps it alive. So shortly after the airing of the show, there was a break in the case. Late in 1981, a prisoner at the Sherbourne County Prison dictated a confession to a cellmate of his. Okay. We have a confession. 30-year-old Joseph Torrey gave a prison official a confession, two confessions, really. They were two separate letters. Confession of five murders. Five? Five. And one of them was Marlis Woolenhouse. Okay. I really hope 
they took this and they tried to see if it was real. <laughs> wow. Okay. So let's talk about who this guy is. Joseph Tory. well, he was in prison awaiting trial for the rape and murder of 19-year-old waitress Diane Edwards on September 26, 1980. According to official court documents, Diane Edwards was abducted by Joseph Tory as she was walking home from her job at a Perkins restaurant in West St. Paul. Her abduction was witnessed by four other girls. They called the police, but they couldn't say what kind of car it was that she had been forced into, except that it was a station wagon. However, many other witnesses are also going to see the same thing, and they also don't know the make and model of the car, except for it's a station wagon with rust and wood paneling. Oh my god, Like almost like an epiphany just went off. So this guy does have the, I'll call it street cred, because we know that he, look what he's done, right? This okay. person. But wait, the similarity here is that both were waitresses. Interesting. I wonder now if he visited wherever she was uh, a waitress at and maybe followed her home. Interesting. You know? Maybe. Ooh. Oh. See, you always do this. You make me think. Okay. I like it. So the body of Diane Edwards had been found 15 days later by a hunter on the side of a rural road. Her naked body was lying face down in a ditch with a pile of her clothes next to her. The county medical examiner concluded that the young woman had died from a loss of blood resulting from stab wounds in her chest. Based on his opinion, the ME stated that he believed the murder weapon had been a six-inch knife similar to a buck knife. In addition to the stab wounds, there were four bruises on her face, one on her right shoulder, and what looked like ligature marks on her arms from a piece of rope. A sexual assault exam was performed, and it revealed traces of semen in Diane's cervical area. But because of exposure to the elements and decomposition, blood type could not be determined from the sample. See, this, though, is very different from the discovery of Marlis Woolenhouse's body, because this poor girl had been found naked, she had been severely beaten, she was stabbed, and she was raped. Yeah, it is different. I mean, see, that's the issue there that makes us kind of iffy because just like everything you just said, it's not the same. The stabbing, the ligature marks, and uh, the the obvious the obvious presence of sexual assault. So I don't know. And a, and a rape kit was performed also on Marlis. She was fully clothed when she was found, and the blood was completely saturated into her clothes. So it did seem as if her clothes were not taken off at any time during her attack um, because there was no blood on her body beneath her clothing, which had been saturated by blood. And um, later on, this will be tested and it's going to be inconclusive. There's no okay. sexual so, assault. So, yeah, I, I think that this guy might just be trying to, like, up his count on the amount of people that he's killed. It's possible. That is a strong possibility. We've seen it happen numerous times. Or maybe he's trying to look for some sort of leniency on his sentence if he confesses to something else maybe. somehow. I don't know, but there, these are all possibilities. Right. Well, back to the Diane Edwards case. So how did police find Joseph Torrey and how did they connect him with this crime? Police in West St. Paul were actually told by the police in a neighboring town of Hopkins that 
there had been a man named Joseph Tory who was a suspect in a criminal sexual conduct case. And at the time of his arrest, he had a book with him that had names of waitresses and their addresses and license plates. So they thought that he may be of interest to them in their investigation because Diane Edwards had been a waitress. And so was Marlis Woolenhouse. He eventually, in 1984, would be convicted of the rape and murder of Diane Edwards. Huh. But let's go back to the confession in 1981. So this is prior to his trial for Diane Edwards. He's going to confess to Marlis's murder and four other murders. The four other murders he claimed happened at the same time, and we'll get into them later, but that was one confession and Marlis was another confession. So he claims he killed a family and he's claiming he also killed Marlis. Okay. He's all over the place right now. And he did say he wanted his cellmate to be the one to write out the confession while he dictated it because he was not that great at spelling based on the confession, nor was his cellmate, but that's okay. We're not doing a grammar check here. But I do have the confession. Oh, please. I, I want to re- I want to see this. Okay. I'm just going to say there are, there's some vocabulary that I will, like, refuse to use. So I'll just – you'll know what I mean. Okay? okay. All right. Okay. My name is Joseph Tory. I am making this second statement – the first one was the murder of the family – in hopes of getting to St. Peter State Hospital for treatment. There's a motive. I am making this statement of my own will. I am not being pressured or forced into making this statement. I am aware of the fact that I could be in a lot of trouble for making this statement. I am again having Toby Crominga write it all for me while I tell him what to put down because he spells better than I do. And in this statement, I want to talk about Marlis Woolenhouse. And in this statement, I want to talk about the Marlis Woolenhouse murder. I am not sure of the spelling of her name. I worked for her dad at his body shop, Greg's Body Shop. I was a mechanic, and he paid me in cash for tax reasons we both made out. I also went to Milwaukee, Wisconsin a few times to pick up cars for Greg. He's running a chop shop. One day, he had an argument with his wife. And afterwards, he said he would pay a lot of money to get rid of that bitch. So I decided to do that. And after I got rid of her, I was going to go to Greg for a bunch of money and get out of the state. I went up to the house. I knew where it was because I was there before to pick up money from Greg. To get there, I went up a steep hill and took the right fork to get to the Woolen House. I guess he means the Woolen House house. Yeah. I pulled up the driveway. I was driving a 1967 Mustang white hardtop. Ugh, that's not a good one. The dog, a St. Bernard. Well, I paused not because of the car, but the girl. The car. No, yeah, yeah Angela. She's right, yeah. yeah. The dog, a St. Bernard, was outside raising hell. So I stayed in the car waiting for Mrs. Woolenhouse to come out. No one came out, and I was about to leave when Marlis showed up. She's a little shit. About 5'6", she's really 5'1", with strawberry blonde hair. 
She was wearing jeans. I can't remember what color blouse. I asked her where her mother was. She said working. I told Marlis who I was and that I wanted to see her mother. I knew Marlis a little and she knew of me. We both bought drugs at Nibbo's restaurant. This is, remember I said she would go dancing across the river? Yes. With her friends at this one dance club. That's what he's referring to. Okay. I asked her if she wanted to smoke a joint and she said, okay. We went into the house at the back door. The dog looked like he wanted a piece of me. So I asked Marlis to lock him up somewhere because he scared me. She took him to her bedroom. I waited inside the back door by her dad's office. When Marlis came back, we went down a couple of steps to the basement. The house was a split level. We went to the rec room and smoked a joint. I told her I would get her some real good dope for a piece of ass. She said, hell no, I wouldn't go to bed with you. So I figured I needed a weapon to convince her of the idea. So I told her my car wouldn't start and I needed some tools. She pointed to where the storeroom was and said, look in there. So I went to the storeroom and found a hatchet on a workbench. And then there's a sketch of the hatchet. I went back to the storeroom with the hatchet and told Marlis I wanted sex, basically. She said, bug off and get the hell out of this house. I freaked and I hit her three or four times in the head with a hatchet. I heard the dog going crazy upstairs, so I left in a hurry. On my way, I was going to take a CB radio from the office, but decided not to, because I never take anything that will tie me to the crime. I was going to drive away real slow without attracting attention, but when I got to the fork in the road, I saw some little bitch looking at me. So I spun gravel and got the hell out of there. I threw the hatchet off a bridge in South St. Paul by the Concord Street exit, going west across the bridge. I then went into the city and got an N-word whore and got laid. I don't want to talk about this anymore, so end of statement. Signed, Joseph Torrey, December 15th, 1981, and Toby Kraminga, same date. Wow. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack there. A lot. But I'll start off by saying that is all things that were not mentioned to the public and no one else would know unless they were either there, like they actually did it themselves, or they were there as a witness of something of someone else doing it. Correct. So this really does solidify the whole worker, you know, hiring someone to kind of do it. But what's interesting is that it ties up so many, like, there's so many, like, little, uh, it ties all these little things together. So he is, a, like, he knows the family because Greg's doing illegal stuff with the chop shop. He And that's probably where, you know, he knows all these, quote, unquote, seedy people. Right. There's the whole drug thing that's going on there, you know, innocent drug thing there. So this is uh, really eye-opening, actually. I find this confession to be very confusing. Because there are some things that, like you said, were not told to the public and are very detailed and seemingly it would be things that only the killer knew. However, there's a lot of things that are not true. Okay. The murder weapon was not a hatchet. Yeah. 
if he would have hit Marlis over the head with a hatchet three or four times, there would be hatchet impressions within her head. These were two puncture wounds. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And it, and he goes to make a sketch of the hatchet as well. So that I find strange. Uh-huh. He does know there's a CB radio within the house, in the office. That is where Fran had it. She's an EMT, so she does have a CB radio in the house with her. A lot of people just even casually had CB radios in the 1970s. But the thing with the dog also is not true. Patience is literally named Patience and does not bark, hides from strangers, and was not found in Marlis's bedroom, was found in someone else's bedroom, and the dog is never let out of the house when nobody's home. So what that indicates then is that this person already knows that they're going away, right? Because now fast forward, what is that, three years? He was convicted, right? Well, yeah, yeah, he will be in 1984. So in 1984, he will be convicted. So this guy knows that most likely he's going away. Is there a possibility that someone was able to relay a message to him while in prison, pretty much saying, listen, I'll, you know, you never know, I'll put money in your commissary or I'll pay for your lawyer or I'll do whatever if you say that you did this and then gave some of the details that makes it sound believable, but yet there are some things that don't. So, like, for example, the dog, the hatchet, the murder weapon, those things don't make sense, but the peeling out, you know, going there. And and so some of the details are real, and that's why um, they were never given to the public, but they are real because someone told them to him. Yeah. So he could make this uh, written statement. Or is it a possibility that there are so many truths within this? That he really was an employee for Greg, and that is how he knew where the house is. That is how he knew about the CB radio, and he knew about all of these things. Could he potentially have went there to go get money from Greg, and then he came upon the murder and then left? That's a possibility, too. I mean, I guess, but then why would you take credit for for it? What did he say at the beginning of the statement? He wants to go to a state mental hospital. Doesn't want to be in prison. Right, but that would be an incentive. Like him doing this, but him actually physically doing it would be an incentive to maybe going to a mental facility instead of a prison. Yeah, he's trying to claim he's insane. Right. but By committing more murders. Right. Well, that's why I kind of said earlier, taking credit, just kind of increasing your number or your kill list. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yeah. And so this is what goes on with this confession. Cause there's things that the detectives are like, oh my God, it's him. And then there's things that are like, wait, that's not true. So that's what's so hard. Yeah. No, it is difficult. So there was another statement made, like I said, but we'll get into the statement of the family later. The confession about Marlis was brought to the family. And by this time, honestly, Greg had been completely ruled out as a suspect. So him saying that Greg was offering money for him to kill Fran, but then he ended up getting mad that Marlis didn't want to have sex with him, so he killed her with a hatchet. Like, that's literally his story. But Greg had been ruled out, and Greg had also been really helping with the investigation, helping both Fran and her new boyfriend 
and eventual husband, Jack Mundy. So Greg and Fran and the children really all get together and kind of talk about like, what's the validity of this statement? Like, is it true? Greg said it could have been possible that this guy worked for him under the table, moving cars around, especially during that time, the spring of 1979, because there had been a period where Ray was sick for a really long time and he didn't work. And while he wasn't working, Greg was getting temporary work from other like auto body shops. So there is a possibility that this guy could have worked for him. But they were also skeptical about some parts of the story beyond that of just the murder weapon, like the behavior of the dog and Marlis putting him away. The children would have never shut the door on patients. They yeah. wouldn't have done that. Well, see, that's good confirmation from the family. Yeah. You know what I mean? But based on, you know, things he was saying, especially him um, talking about peeling out of the driveway and seeing Angela they came to the conclusion that this confession could potentially be legitimate and he's lying about things to like make himself seem insane if that's what he's trying to do. I get what you're saying. So by saying, um, you know, I killed her with a hatchet, hatchet like yeah. just scary. The hatchet her. makes no sense. Cause honestly, I mean, I know this is a little gruesome and I'd hate to like make it worse, <laughs> you know, for the victim here, you know, in the family, but you got to think, if someone's using a hatchet, if they're hitting someone a couple times, there's a possibility you could like do well, way more damage than than a hammer. Than a hammer or another tool of yeah. that same caliber. I agree. A hatchet, you know, you're cutting through, you know what I mean? The it's skull not... would have various impact points and they would also be elongated. They wouldn't be punctures. Correct. And they would and there would be a lot of scoring, a lot of yes. you know marks on the on the actual bone. And so, the hand and and the hands. And the hands. Right. And which, that's why the Emmy's right. It's a blunt object. That's why she has broken fingers and hands. And it seems like the the initial hit, that shocking hit, might have been from the claw side of the hammer. And then he turned it around. Yeah. That's why the hatchet doesn't make sense. Well, before detectives or anybody could really go anywhere into the investigation as to the confession, and whether it was true or not, Tori is going to recant his confession. Oh, my God. Okay. And the man who wrote it all down for him is going to do the same. The Crominga, the Toby Crominga, the one who wrote it all down, he even does interviews with the media. And both of them are going to say that it was just a ploy for Tori to be entered into a state hospital versus the prison system. But it clearly had not worked. <laughs> So Joseph Torrey was saying that it was all untrue. Okay. But don't you find that bizarre, though? Like, a lot of those things that he said seem very true. I agree with you. I agree. I would want to know, if I was an investigator, I would want to, I would press him hard. Well, he that's must what, know somebody. Well, that's what they're going to do. Okay. The Washington County detectives that were working Marlis's case still wanted to check this out. I mean, just because somebody said, oh, no, never mind lying. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, they still do want to check him out. So they're going to look into the alibi that he claims he had. Because when he recants his confession, he said, no, I was at work that day. Okay. So they're going to check up on his alibi and see if he was at work, 
then he couldn't have committed the murders. So at the time, Tori was also employed at the Ford Auto Plant Factory. So they called his place of employment at the time. And the HR department is going to confirm that during the date of the murder, May 8th, 1979, at the time of the murder, Joe Torrey was at work. Okay, and that's that's believable because I'm sure there's a time card. It was a time a t- card, yeah. a time punch card. Yeah, like a timestamp, so we know that he was there from when he went in than when he came out. Right. So we don't know how he knows this information. Maybe you're correct. It was re- relayed to him in prison um, by someone that he knew because they had worked at Greg's auto body together. But it does seem as if this was all a scheme to get Tori out of prison and into a facility because he knew he was going to be going away for what had happened with Diane Edwards. Fran and the rest of Marlis's family were very disappointed because, again, now here they are at square one. Yeah, and that's horrible because now you have – it's almost like every every kind of lead that you have – it's just kind of fizzled out now. Right. It sucks. And that's where they would be until 1994. Seriously? Yep. Oh, that poor family for 20, what? It's like 20 something years. Oh, my God. Well, almost. Okay. I'm bad with math. It's okay. Well, the, Numbers know, are hard. Numbers are very hard. They're very difficult. I'm, I'm bad with this. As am That's I. why you do the finances. And it's still questionable. You know what? Better than me. Yeah. <laughs> Um, The case will be reopened by the state of Minnesota's cold case unit of the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension. A special agent with that task force would work with the Washington County Sheriff's Department to look over all of the case files again. At first, they didn't have a lot of hope of solving the crime when they saw that the case file was so thin because... They weren't going to have a lot to go on here because truly there had been no suspects. But they were shocked when, amongst the files, they find a confession. Someone had confessed. And when the detectives at the sheriff's station who had worked the original case said, yeah, we had this confession, but then the guy had an airtight alibi and he recanted, so it wasn't him. Well, one of the now detectives with the sheriff's department who was a deputy at the time um, says I actually know someone at the Ford automotive plant and I can give them a call and they can look into this again if you want so the special agent is going to say go for it we need to kind of go through all of this evidence and cover everything we can and because we really have nothing else all we have is this confession so look into it when he spoke with the man on the phone He first, before he referenced the date he needed, asked the man if he knew Joseph Torrey and, you know, kind of like what kind of guy was he? What kind of worker? Did people like him? And the reply was shocking. Okay. Are you ready for this? Yeah. Well, he said, we all loved Joe Sr. He was a great man, but his son, Joe Jr., he was another person entirely. Ooh. Okay. So that meant there had been two Joseph Tories working at the plant at the time of the murders. Oh, I know where this is going. Okay. He couldn't hold back. Like, he just had to. 
I need to know what Joseph Torrey was working on May 8th, 1979. The man got back to him right away. Joe Sr. had been working that day. Not Joe Jr. He never clocked in. The alibi had been proven false. And now they would have to determine if that meant the confession stood. Yeah, right, because now he could be placed at this murder. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is good. This is good, Kay. No, this is like, it's like, it's like, um, oh, this crazy, like, murder mystery movie where, like, you just can't stop but wonder. Oh, so I good. I need to trick you every once in a while. Jesus, you've been is... figuring them all out. <laughs> this is good. So they would love to have arrested Tori right there for the crime right away, but they couldn't. Because Minnesota law states that you cannot prosecute someone based on a confession alone. The confession has to be corroborated with either witness testimony or physical evidence. That meant they would have to find it. One thing they did not have to worry about, though, was Tory going anywhere because he was serving a life sentence for what he had done to Diane Edwards. So at least they had him. Fran and Jack Mundy are going to give a press conference. The couple, now married at that point for years, um, wanted to renew interest in the case and potentially drum up some witnesses so we could kind of corroborate this confession so we can arrest Tori. Angela, the little girl who had been nine at the time, who had seen the light sports car rip out of the Woolen House driveway, was now 26. And still remembered that incident to that day. She told detectives and the district attorney that she would gladly testify as to what she had seen. Her account was important because it corroborated the confession. But they needed more. So in July of 1996, Fran chose to go on a television program about her daughter's murder to reach a wider audience. The producers of the show knew about the confession and the blown alibi. So they asked Joseph Chory Jr. if he wanted to be in the interview for the show under the guise of clearing his name, because at this point he had no idea that his alibi was known to not be true. Well, that's good. Yep. So he agrees to be interviewed at the Clearwater Prison where he had been since 1991. I mean, he, and he probably agreed to it just because he probably wants out of prison for a little while yes and he's also like i have an alibi they let me go yeah so on the show fran told the heartbreaking story of what happened to her daughter joseph tory sat on camera and stated that he was innocent he only wanted to get out of prison and he wanted to go to a state mental health facility instead of prison and that in reality he had been working that day and he wished everyone would just leave him alone about the case. The show did create a buzz, but not the one that detectives thought it would. Instead of witnesses coming forward in the Marlis Woolenhouse case, other victims did. Tori's face looked familiar to many women who were watching, and they ID'd him as a man that had either raped or sexually assaulted them. Wow. They knew now that they were dealing with a sexual deviant and a murderer. He would be the kind of man who liked to talk. 
So they're going to interview people that were either involved with his past case, so the Diane Edwards case, or people that were in jail or cells with him in prison. And many people, detectives from the Diane Edwards case, uh, attorneys from the Diane Edwards case, and also many cell and jail mates are going to confirm that Tory confessed to them that he had been the one to kill Marlis. So he made this confession several times, even after he went back and recanted his original confession. Well, written one. Detectives from the sheriff's department and the special agent from the cold case unit took this case to the behavioral science unit of the FBI at Quantico to gain a better understanding of what had happened here and to get some guidance as to how they should proceed. They stated, based on the women that had come forward, the crime he was convicted for and what had presumably happened with the Marlis case was that Tori was a predator that had a type. He had a thing for waitresses. Yeah, like in the book, like he had all those names. Yes. Those who agreed to go with him when he made advances, like he would usually say, oh, come take a ride on my motorcycle or go with me here on a date. If they agreed to go with him, those would be the ones who would be raped or sexually assaulted. The ones who denied him would be the ones who were murdered. What a monster. Yeah. And he also took his aggressions out on many prostitutes who came forward. And remember, what we are hearing is only the people who came forward. Right. And imagine there was probably so many that came out because that he was, you know, because he was on TV Correct. being interviewed. Mm-hmm. Oh. So at this point, they believed they had enough evidence to convict Tory. So he had been officially arrested for the murder of Marlis Woolenhouse in December of 1996. The trial would take place in September of 1998. Now, Marlis's family knew that when they were thinking all these years about what had been bothering Marlis, because they really did always carry guilt with them, that she had been bothered by something and that they were upset they didn't ask. The question, what they really should have been thinking was who was bothering Marlis? Because it wasn't anything they did. And there was nothing, nothing that the family could have done. No conversation they could have had with her. Um, no time they could have taken out of their day that would have stopped this monster from doing what he had planned to do. Somebody was bothering Marlis, not something. Yeah. You know, that's just they realized now everything was kind of coming together for them. It was, it had always been Joseph Tory. In the trial where Angela, victims of Joe's, and the father of Diane Edwards testified, Tory was aptly painted as a monster. Many witnesses came forward about the harassment Marlis endured from Tory before her murder. He was a patron at the restaurant who would not leave Marlis alone. He ate there because he had done some odd jobs at her stepfather's body shop, but also because he liked to drive his motorcycle up and down um, the Minnesota side of the St. Croix River, which would always have him end up at the restaurant Marlis worked at 
at St. Croix Beach. He wanted her to go on a date with him, to go for a ride with him, to go smoke pot with him. He had even shown up where she and her friends went dancing, and he had been creepy there as well. Finally, one day at the restaurant, when he was being relentless again, she got loud with him and, in his mind, embarrassed him in front of everyone there. And he got very angry. Male staff members had to get involved to kind of get him to leave the restaurant. We know with other waitress victims, he had written down their license plates and addresses, implying that he had followed them. He must have done the same to Marlis because he knew where she lived. And on May 8th, he went into her home and he waited for her. But what if her family had been home? I'll get to that in a second. In October of 1998, a jury would find Joseph Torrey guilty of first-degree murder in the case of Marlis Woolenhouse, at the great relief of her family. He would be given a second life sentence. But it's not over. Remember when Torrey wrote that confession with the help of his cellmate? He had confessed to four more murders, the murder of a family. And this case would answer the question as to what Tori would have done if Marlis's family would have been home that day, because nothing was going to stop him from getting what he wanted. In January of 2000, Joseph Tori was convicted on four counts of first-degree murder for the December 15, 1978 murders of Alice Hulling and three of her four children. For these crimes, he was sentenced to another four life sentences. Wow. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of things that are interesting here. Because the confession that he recounted about the murder of Marlis Woolenhouse was proven to be true, they went back and they looked at the second confession he did. He confessed to killing um, the Hulling family, well, all but one member of the Hulling family. And he had been a suspect in this family's murder since it had happened. But if you look back at the date of the confession, it's telling. It was December 15th. So what you're telling me is that he, he wanted to like relive it and write it down on. I don't know, but it was three years to the day of that murder. That's very interesting. Like it's yeah. weird timing to me. Yes. That you would come out and have that confession on the same exact on the same, day. Yeah, on the same day. Well, according to court documents, during the early morning hours of December 15th, 1978, Alice Hulling and three of her four children were murdered in their house located in rural Stearns County. The surviving child, William Hulling, was 11 years old at the time and was the only witness to the murders. At trial, which he's so brave for even being able to discuss this, you know. But you have to think, if he's 11 years old in uh, 1978, then, and I did the math here because I can't do quick math at all. And don't ask um, me. <laughs> he was 33 years old during the trial that took place in 2000. So this is the account that he gives. At trial, William testified that he was asleep in the upstairs bedroom that he shared with his 13-year-old brother, Wayne, when, at approximately 4 a.m., 
he was awakened by loud noises coming from the kitchen below. He heard muffled noises and rustling, and then a gunshot. A short while later, he heard footsteps coming up the stairs and saw a person standing in the doorway to the bedroom. The person appeared to be of medium build, less than six feet tall, and wearing a stocking cap. William could see a silhouette of a person's face, but not well enough to make a positive identification. From his bed, Wayne asked, Who are you? The person fired a shotgun at Wayne, killing him instantly. The person then left the boy's room and went to 16-year-old Susie's bedroom, where he shot her in the head and proceeded to the 12-year-old Patty's bedroom, where he shot her in the head as well. Both girls died instantly. After shooting both girls, the gunman returned to the boy's room and fired twice at William, missing both times. He then left. After 10 or 15 minutes, William got out of bed and fled to a neighbor's house. That must be the craziest thing I've ever heard. One of the craziest things I've ever heard. Can you believe this case? Like, yeah. Like, the fact that this kid, that both shots miss and he got out of there. He played dead. Oh. God, that must be so traumatic. Yeah. And your whole family's gone. Yeah. And when the police responded, they actually arrested him because he had been driving a vehicle that was reported as stolen. When they searched the car, within it they found a toy car that was identical to the one that William Hulling owned. And a metal bar. Really? That had two, like, t- puncture... Like, like it was like a, a prong. Yes. See? That is so weird that you said that in yeah. the beginning. Yeah. That and, is weird. And that could have been, instead of the hammer, that could have been the weapon that killed Marlis. Yeah. Because they don't know for a fact it was a hammer. Yeah, because... And, and uh, sorry, I know there's more to this. I just want to say one no, last okay. thing about that tool. Yeah. The reason why I thought of that, on top of everything I listed, was you also have to think, like, even if you're going to strike somebody like that, you need you kind of need leverage. Like, if you were to look at the surface of a hammer on either side, yes, it's going to hurt bad. It's going to do damage. But it's not super heavy. That bar is heavy as hell. And when you hit somebody with it, it's a blunt object with so much weight behind it. So regardless of whatever end that you're getting hit with, it's going to do what it did to her. Yeah. It would be even more aggressive because you're trying to actively kill somebody with this thing. Right. And there's not a lot of weight behind it. So that's why I, I brought it up because it's just like there are other tools that can do the same thing that have that like prong type of claw yes. thing. And it very much might have been the murder weapon. I think it's weird also that he collected a memento and took that car. Oh, yeah. Well, and don't forget he had that list. I also want to add I would love – if a, like a FBI profiler would figure out what his infatuation uh, was with like waitresses and like restaurants, like you know, like how no, he does, he does. There was have, something there with that. So there I, was. I, I wonder what sort of past trauma or thing would manifest that. Sort I wonder of... if you know it does. <laughs> they always joke that it goes back to your mother, but I wonder if anyone in his family or maybe someone that abused him was a waitress yeah like a struggling mother waitress that came home and 
like abuse them or something. Yeah. I don't know. I you know get my you point. Yeah, I, we don't want to say there's like a No, 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 no. I'm just trying it. to say like that his I, infatuation with waitresses what is, it? is yeah, interesting. Yeah, like what is that about? Yeah. So when he was again, he had the toy car with him. He had this bar with him that could have been used in the commission of the crime and also the stocking mask. Oh, okay. However, there was no gun or ammunition found. He claimed the toy car belonged to a child of his, which he doesn't have. And because there's nothing to directly tie him to the murders, he was let go. But he still remained a suspect, but it became a cold case, much like the Marlis Woolenhouse one had become. And because that confession was deemed not true, they also said, okay, well, then this confession has to be not true. Crazy case. Yes. This is unbelievable. So um, he had confessed to it in a separate confession, again, than the one of Marlis's. And because he had been convicted of hers, they tried him for this one. And this one was a little bit easier to convict him on because there had been a, a, a rape that occurred and his DNA was left on Alice's body and it did match to his own. So that was easy. Now, it's unknown the number of women that Joseph Torrey Jr. sexually assaulted, and we'll never know that number. But I'm sure it's a lot larger than the amount of women that have come forward. We do know for a fact that he murdered Alice Hulling, Wayne Hulling, Susan Hulling, Patricia Hulling, Diane Edwards, and Marlis Woolenhouse. That's six people. If there are more victims, we remain unaware. But what we do know is that Joseph Torrey will die in prison. Yeah. Where where he belongs. Absolutely. And justice, for the most part here, justice was served. I mean, like, and I think you bring up a good point. Like, we don't know. But but what you talked about kind of makes me think that there are more victims because he did go to other areas and solicited prostitutes. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised that if he did that to, if if he did that to women who were just working in a restaurant and followed them back home. had connections. Right. That he wouldn't be afraid to just do that to a prostitute that he had no connection to. You know? I agree with you. And I think that if anyone would have been home with Marlis Woolenhouse that day, he would have also killed them as well. 100%. I think that he had planned the Hulling one a little bit more intensely because of the mask and because he had a gun with him. So I think that one was a little bit more planned. But a lot of times people say that justice delayed is justice denied. But I think in this case, Fran... And the Woolenhouse family worked so hard for so many years to kind of get justice for Marlis. And I I don't think that justice delayed is justice denied because when families can get answers and they could feel like repercussions had happened, I think that's really important. And I'm so glad that it happened in this case, which was just an insane roller coaster to go on. And this is a a horrible, horrible man that I am so glad was taken off of the streets in 1980. And what he did before that was do nothing but wreak havoc. But I am so glad he was caught so early on. 
Yeah, uh, and and you know what? Like in this case, the, uh, there's different uh, special set of circumstances here because he was already in prison, and even though the Marlis's family did not get justice right right away, like you're talking about, at least he was put away, and they knew that they were really trying to get this guy on things that he has done. Yeah. And that's like, yes, I would still be upset. Like, okay, I don't officially know who did this to my daughter, but at least you would say, okay, well, at least this guy is in prison and I'm awaiting my justice and he can't do this to anyone else. I agree. So like, it's, it's a different set of of circumstances because sometimes families are waiting for 20, 30 years and never, find out anything yeah but still that sting hurts and what happened to this family and what happened to her is horrible i agree so that was a good one i loved it i mean i'm so sad that this we know happens but this was a very good case and i i commend you on a really good case thank you sir you're welcome well um before we go we do want to thank our patreon our new patreon supporters so we would just want to say an endless thank you to Lauren Campbell, Megan Rosick, Erin, Lisa Flaherty, Alice Leardham Gadsen, Chastity Prosser, Claudia Argredano, Julie McClowski, Yvette Montalvo, Jeannie Young, Olivia Para, Sarah Brugman, Lauren Shirley, Brittany Meyer, Helena Souza, Kelly Disney Smith, Tater, Mariah Bird, up to her pledge, Chris, Lucy, Lisa Withrow, Just Another Yellow Girl, Nina, Sophie Haworth, Rachel Smith, Courtney Albertson, and Afru Saya. Thank you so much for joining Patreon. We hope you're enjoying the extra episodes. And until next time, Don't park next to vans or talk to crazy people at restaurants. Yes. Don't do that. Yes. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.